Everybody doing all right? All right, good, 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 good. Again, I want to welcome those of you who are visiting with us uh, this morning. We can't think of any place that we would rather you be than with us uh, celebrating the Lord himself this morning. Uh, And just want to again invite you uh, following the service this morning to stick around and join us for our potluck fellowship. So on the other side of this wall, be a long table uh, with different kinds of foods. It's interesting, appropriately enough, the potluck is an international theme, uh, appropriate given what we're thinking about in terms of missions uh, in the announcements that we heard this morning. So we hope you'll stick back and uh, let us get to know you uh, by, by name and to fellowship with you uh, over a meal in that way. Now we're about to turn our attention to God's word, and it may be that you need a copy of the Bible this morning. So if you would, just raise your hands, uh, hold them up high. There are a couple brothers who are passing out Bibles this morning if you need one. Now, if you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. Take that Bible, write your name in it, um, take it with you when you leave, read it each day, um, seek the God who reveals himself uh, in that word. Uh, Right up front here. Okay. Uh, If you do own a Bible, don't take it with you. Give it back so we can give it to somebody else who needs a Bible, all right? Uh, Everybody have a Bible that wishes one? Okay. Amen. Brent needs one. The missionary needs a Bible. (laughs) Let me offer a word of prayer, and then we'll turn to God's word. Where else can we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. You are the word made flesh. And it's your life that you impart to your people. We'd be dead in our sins without you. Unable to rise, unable to live, unable to do anything pleasing in your sight. But through you and the power of your resurrection, we have an unending, abundant life that can never be taken away or destroyed. And it's that life, O oh Lord, we wish to enjoy to the full as we come to your word. And it's that life that we wish to see spread as we proclaim your word. So give us life this morning as we drink from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you are visiting with us this morning, uh, perhaps it's your first Sunday with us, you have landed in the early part of a series that we have called Being the Church. And in this series, what we're attempting to do is to offer the church, we are a fairly new church, four years old, uh, to offer the church some reminders about who we are, what it means to be a church, and how, as a church, we are called to live together. In the first five or six sermons in this series, we're, we're basically trying to survey the Bible on this question, what is the church, and to look at it from different angles. In the sort of seven or eight sermons following that, we want to talk about how this, thing's, this thing lives and moves and interacts. We're going to do a series on the, the one another's. So, so far in, this, in our series, Being the Church, we've been laying this theological foundation. And, and we've shown three things from the Bible so far. Number one, that the church is the people of God. The people of God. 
And from Genesis to Revelation, we trace that theme showing that the, that the people of God or the church is, is God's chosen people being brought to God's chosen place, living on God's chosen program or mission. In the second sermon, we, we said not only is the church the people of God, but the church is the body of Christ. We looked at that metaphor in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and, and, and discovered there that we are the body of Christ and every Christian a member of it, a part of that body, and every Christian indispensable. Every body part needed, no extra parts around. Last week in our third sermon, we, we talked about not the body, but the head. And we consider the fact that Jesus Christ is the sole and sufficient head of the church. He's the only head of the church, and he is enough. There are no other rulers of, of his body. And we talked about the fact that Jesus being head means five things, that he has universal authority. He rules all things. Secondly, that he is a gift to the church, that the Father gave him to the church as her head. And number three, that being the head, he is inseparably joined to the body. We thought again about our union with Christ. And number four, that he fills the church and the universe. And number five, he nourishes the church and causes it to grow. Now, those first three sermons really kind of answered the question, uh, what is the church's relationship to God? So considering the, the vertical. These next two sermons, today and, and next Sunday, Lord willing, we want to then sort of think about the horizontal, how the church is related to itself. We're going to answer two questions this week and next week. Number one. What does the Bible teach about leadership of the church? And number two, what does the Bible teach about the role of the congregation? So we've been waiting on a sermon for, about congregationalism. That's next week. Today we're going to talk about leadership. Now, Lord willing, we'll, we'll take on, as I said, that second question next week. And this week we'll address uh, the question of leadership. And specifically, I, I want us to ask and answer three questions. Number one. What are the biblical offices of the New Testament church? And when did those offices begin? What are the biblical offices of the New Testament church? And when did those offices begin? Number two, who can serve in those biblical offices? Who can serve in those biblical offices? And what are the requirements? And then number three, how should the church respond to or support those offices and the people in those offices? So what are the offices? Who can serve in them? And how should we support those leaders? Now, let me just start with a kind of pastoral word before I tell you about our method for the sermon this morning. No doubt that some come to this subject aware of the raging debates that are happening in the broader sort of church world. Christians are fiercely debating again things like the role of women uh, in the church and in the leadership. Now, I raise that question of the broader debate really to ask you to dismiss it. That, that if you come to this sermon and to this text 
with kind of categories and arguments and bullet points for whatever your favorite side is, there's a fair chance you're going to miss some of what the Bible is saying. So what I want you to do is to come to the text with the attitude of admitting everything that's in the text, right? And then figuring out how it fits together. So I want to do a constructive Bible up kind of work on this question of leadership rather than a, an ideological Bible down imposing on the Bible whatever our categories are. All right, so I'm going to do my best to walk us through the book of Acts and give us an overview of the book of Acts, particularly with an eye toward the development of the offices in the New Testament church. Then I'm going to try and give us a sense of where the letters that are written, two of them in particular, 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy, fit in that history. Because I'm concerned that when we come to this question, there's a whole lot of well-intended Bible ping pong going on. I serve a Bible verse, you hit one back. I serve a Bible verse, you hit one back. Without any sense of where the verses we're using fit in the development of the church. So I want to give us that history using the book of Acts, and then I want to drop into two letters which come near the end of the history of Acts, and then I want us to sort of think about these questions in that way. Is that all right? You know it's got to be because that's all I got this morning. (laughs) So look with me if you got your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, and let's begin with this first question. What are the biblical offices of the New Testament church, and, and when do they begin? So in Acts chapter 1, you know that Luke, a companion of the Apostle Paul, has written this volume for us. It's a second volume in his works, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Uh, He wrote this as a history of the church and maybe wrote this in part as a legal brief in defense of the Apostle Paul for one of his trials. He begins there, notice in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 1, with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus has already been crucified for our sins, buried and resurrected. And he has already appeared to his disciples and and had five or six weeks or so with his disciples teaching them before he ascends into heaven. And you'll see there in verses 4 and 5 that Jesus makes a promise. He's going to go away, but he's going to send the Holy Spirit uh, just as he had taught them before. Now, verses 6 to 11 record for us the the ascension of the Lord. He he is raised up to heaven where he is now, seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling all things uh, from that honored position. All this is happening in and around, depending on how you date the book of Acts, 30 to 33 AD. In one sense, there is no church yet. Look there in verse 15. There are 120 disciples all total. Now, it's interesting. The first thing these disciples address is leadership. They look to replace the apostleship of Jesus, or excuse me, of Judas. You can't replace Jesus' apostleship, of Judas. That's what's happening in verses 12 to 26. Now, the word apostle means messenger. But in a technical sense here, apostle was the first office of the New Testament church. It's right there at the beginning. And an apostle was one who had authority over the entire church to teach, to rule, to shepherd the church. We have the 11 uh, here in chapter 1. They give specific instruction as to what qualifies someone to be an apostle. Look there in verses 21 and 22. 
They say two things. That, that's, that to be an apostle, you must have been with Jesus for the Lord's entire earthly ministry. From the um, baptism of the Lord to his crucifixion and resurrection. You had to be an eyewitness to that. And then number two, flowing from that, you, you have to be a witness to the resurrection. These are the qualifications for the unique office of apostleship, which means, beloved, there are no more apostles. I don't care what title a man likes to use for himself. In this unique sense, there are no more apostles. It ended when the last apostle died and the apostolic era concluded. But what I want us to see here is right away, the question of leadership is on the agenda of these 120 disciples, the early church. So the first office we have right from the start is apostles. Now, look with me in Acts chapter 2. Acts 2 really records the fulfillment of Jesus' promise to send the Holy Spirit. It's the day of Pentecost, a, a holy day in ancient Judaism. Thousands and thousands of people are in Jerusalem for the celebration when in Acts chapter 2, verses 2 to 4, the Holy Spirit comes. Like a mighty rushing wind, verse 2 says. He filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So much we could talk about right here. I know you want to talk about tongues, but that ain't the subject of the sermon. Another time. <laughs> What I want us to focus on again here is the development of leadership in the early church. That's, and what we see here is this. When the Spirit comes, a new gift and office is developed. The gift of prophecy and the inclusion of New Testament prophets. Now, some of the people saw this, the disciples speaking in tongues, and, and they mocked the disciples, said that they were, they were drunk. But now, notice in verse 6, a multitude came together, and, and they were bewildered because each one of them heard the disciples speak in his own language. They, they heard the disciples, notice in verse 12, telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now, the interesting thing is this. When Peter explains this, he explains it as both fulfillment of prophecy and the beginning of a new era of prophets. Look in verse 16. Peter quotes from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on male servants and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Again, so many things to say. Notice something very important, I think, to keep in mind about the kingdom of God and the nature of the church right from the beginning. The church is a profoundly egalitarian community. Now, when I use that term egalitarian, I'm not yet talking about roles. I'm talking about relationships in the church 
And I'm talking about access to the gifts. That the Spirit pours out himself and the gifts in equal measure on male and female, young and old. So every individual in the church is of equal worth and value, and every individual in the church is equally blessed with the gift of the Holy Spirit himself. The Holy Spirit is given to every believer, male and female, young and old, and the gifts are distributed sovereignly by the Spirit to every member of the church, male and female, young and old. Again, we're not talking about roles here yet. We're, we're talking about community. And whatever else we understand about roles, it should be understood in light of this radical, egalitarian, equalitarian community that the gospel creates. Amen. Amen. Right? The other thing to notice from the day of Pentecost is the explosive growth of the church. Actually, let me say one other thing about this egalitarian thing. A lot of the fever in the debate around giftings and roles and offices, I think is driven by a kind of advocacy impulse. Where many of our sisters with gifts feel oppressed and limited and stymied. And they're not always wrong. Our brother Tim Ballard said something when he was teaching the marriage class about um, leadership and submission in, in marriage. Uh, he said something that stuck with me. He said, you know, our wives should never have to fight for equality. But that should be given and understood, even as we play the roles that Scripture has has designed for us. And I think here in the text and, and in the New Testament church and in the kingdom of God, if I'm right that this is an egalitarian community in terms of relationships, women in the church should not have to fight for what feels like equality. Right? And I'm convinced, you can tell me if I'm wrong over potluck. I'll, I'll listen to you more happily while I'm eating. I'm, I'm convinced that a lot of the drive and the clutching for roles that the scripture circumscribes is actually fueled by a kind of impulse to advocate for equality. And if you listen to those folks who, who argue for uh, egalitarianism in terms of roles, a lot of their argument is framed in precisely that way of getting equality. So that sisters shouldn't have to feel like they're fighting for inclusion and affirmation and usefulness in the work of the kingdom. Coming back to Acts chapter 2. The other thing to notice from the day of Pentecost is the explosive growth of the church. Acts 2.41 says there were about 3,000 people added to the church on that first day on Pentecost when Peter preaches that sermon. Come down to Acts chapter 2 verse 47. The text says there that day by day disciples were being added to their number. So you got this situation where you've got explosive growth events, but also daily steady growth. Now, by Acts chapter 2, verses 44 and 45, Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37, the church is not only an egalitarian community, it is something of a communitarian community as well. And what do I mean by that? Well, if you look at those texts, it says the church shared everything it had and gave to people as each person had need. So not only was there a sense of equality in the body, 
but there was a sense of mutual care and sacrificing and giving for the need. So that uh, is striking. Acts 2 and Acts 4 both say, so that no one had need. Now, here's the thing. I'm just giving that for context. If, if you have an egalitarian community with explosive growth and daily growth, attempting to be communitarian, sharing with each other so that no one has needs, guess what kind of need you're going to have in an organization? You're going to have a need for leadership. One of the most significant things you're going to be facing is having enough leadership to attend to that kind of value system and that kind of growth. So we're not surprised. Come down with me to Acts chapter 6 now. We're not surprised that when we come to Acts chapter 6, we see the creation of a, of a whole new office. It's about a year or two later from Acts chapter 1. The church is still there in Jerusalem, and it's facing some challenges and needs. Verse 1 of Acts 6 says this, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So a year and a half later, maybe two years later, they haven't figured everything out yet. There's, there's still some growth pains. And, and the church is growing, but it's experiencing some conflict too, right? Those things can, can go together. There's a cultural and a material conflict. The Greek-speaking Jews, uh, their widows apparently are not being, uh, having their needs met by the church, while the Hebrew-speaking widows, uh, Jewish widows, are, are in fact being served by the church. And that begins to cause some disunity, that injustice because, causes some rift in the body of Christ. And how does the early church respond? Creates the office of deacons. That's what we see in verses 2 to 6. The apostles tell them to uh, name some people to pray, and they would set them aside to, to take care of this practical matter. Now, some commentators and pastors say that, that Acts 6 may not be the start of deacons, that the word deacon actually isn't used in those six or seven verses. But if it's not the start of the office of deacon, then actually there's no place in the Bible where we're told about the office beginning. If this is not the start of the diaconate, then the deacons like Melchizedek just drop down out of nowhere. Now that would be odd, to me at least, given that there's no Old Testament equivalent to deacons. We'd have an, an entirely new, ongoing office of the church with no explanation for its origin. That, that seems implausible to me. I think it's better to see Acts 6 as the beginning of the office of deacon, even though the word is not coined at that time. Verses 2 to 6 again describes the qualifications and the callings of the first seven deacons there. Now, what I want us to notice here is that deacons were created to serve the practical or physical needs of the church. In this case, the widows. And to preserve in the church unity, reconciliation, justice, uh, and, and need meeting in the body of Christ. Deacons and deaconesses were created to be the, the shock absorbers of the church. Here's a ministry that encounters things that aren't going quite right, and instead of multiplying the conflict, they absorb it and settle it. So the church continues to know peace and unity and fellowship and joy. And look at verse 7. And so that the word continues to multiply and to grow. 
So at this point, two years in, we have three offices. Apostles, prophets, and deacons. I want to jump ahead about five or six years in the story. It's around A.D. 40. And what we're going to see is the addition of more prophets and now a new office beginning to emerge, the office of elders. So jump down to Acts chapter 11. Church is about seven years old at this point. And in Acts chapter 11, we're going to see two things regarding leadership in the churches. The first thing we're going to see is that the gift of prophecy continues. Acts 11, 27 to 30. Let me read that for us. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem, plural, prophets, plural, came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So we, we see here we got Agabus who, who foretells the event. So this is one aspect of prophecy predicting future things. The other aspect of prophecy, prophecy is foretelling, preaching the truth in, in front of people. So he foretells these events in verse 28. And notice the, prophet, the, the prophecy is prompted by the Spirit. So this is divine revelation of specific events to come. And in response, verse 29, uh, the, the church and the, uh, the, the, the leaders decide to send relief to the saints in Judea. Now, the second thing to notice there is in verse 30, that by this time we have our first mention of elders in the Christian church. The church sent the offering, listen, by the hands of the, the elders or, or, or to the elders in Judea by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now, before this point in Acts, about 40 AD, every other mention of elder was actually a reference to elders in the Jewish synagogue. The, the Christian movement is still inside of Judaism at this time. It, 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 they are not references to a, an individual independent office in an independent church. But, but here now we begin to see the emergence of elders in the local church alongside the apostles in Jerusalem and in Judea. So the church seems to be figuring out a kind of pastoral function, an overseer function in the church. Now, not much is said here other than that mention, but as we go along, we'll see that the elders become more and more prominent in the life of the church. Jump with me to Acts chapter 13. Jumping ahead a couple years, it's about 45 AD. Church is now about 12 years old. The church of Antioch is continuing to just boom and grow, and they're blessed with great leadership. Notice in Acts chapter 13, verse 1, now that we're at the church in Antioch, prophets, plural. Again, that office continues from the day of Pentecost to be vital in the ministry of the church. But now we find the reference for the first time to a, another office, teachers, in the book of Acts. Now, those in Antioch who, who have the role of systematically instructing the church in God's word. That's what a teacher is. Uh, the text doesn't tell us which were prophets and which were teachers. But in any case, the emphasis on teaching has reached a point in the church that it's created a whole new role. It's created an office there. 
And then finally, notice in Acts 13, 1 to 3, the Holy Spirit does something new and extraordinary. The Spirit speaks to the church and says, set aside for me Paul and Barnabas for the work that I have for them. This is the first time in the history of the church where two people are laid aside specifically for the work of missions. So we get the rise of missionaries here. So, So what we just did and praying for Brittany and the Howards and Brenton and uh, even the, the work of church planting goes all the way back now to about 45 AD to the early church doing this right there in Acts chapter 13 at Antioch. So basically, a dozen years after Pentecost, there's several recognized roles. Apostles, prophets, deacons, Elders, teachers, and missionaries. The church is not only growing in the number of offices, but it seems in some sense to be specializing for different aspects for the work of the ministry. Teachers differ from missionaries who differ from apostles and deacons and so on. So right up to Acts 13, the Christian movement, as I said a moment ago, is still inside of, Jerusalem, inside of Judaism. It's viewed as a Jewish sect. It's not yet operating as an independent church and religion, but that's about the change as the history develops. Move down with me to about 48 AD in Acts chapter 14, verses 19 to 23. Acts 14, beginning in verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, And saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Verse 23 is what I want us to see. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So now we get not just a passing reference to elder as we saw in Acts 11. Now it's an intentional part of missionary strategy to organize churches that have this office of elders. Notice now that they do this elders plural. There are multiple elders in each local church. The pattern is not for a single man to be the pastor, kind of ruling alone. It is for a team of godly, gifted, qualified men together to shepherd the church and to lead the church. Notice also that it's not a multi-site strategy. No shade to multi-site churches. We're just making it real clear. Each church has its own elders. These new churches in missionary fields far away from the apostles in Jerusalem, they need their own shepherds to remain with them and to teach them. So what we first saw mentioned in passing in chapter 11 has now become a core strategy in chapter 14. Now, by the time we come to Acts chapter 15, with this important meeting called the Jerusalem Council, 
where the church is called together to settle once and for all questions about the gospel and questions about whether or not the Gentiles can be included in the church and the kingdom and on on what basis, something interesting to observe here. Acts chapter 15 verse 4 says that presiding over the Jerusalem council were the apostles and who? The elders. Verse 6 says the apostles and who? The elders were gathered together to consider the matter. And in verse 22, it was the apostles along with the elders in the church who decided to send their decision to the churches by Paul and Barnabas. From this point forward in the New Testament, elder and apostle is often mentioned in the same breath. And when you read a letter like 1 Peter and come to chapter 5 and he begins to address elders, he writes as an apostle and fellow elder with you. So there is then this sense that the apostleship has become a kind of paradigm for the eldership. And what fades away in terms of apostles as an office gets re-embodied, not with the same kind of authority, but gets re-embodied in the pastor, elder, overseer, bishop. All of those are the same office. So you see churches, and they mean well, again, no shade. You see churches that are more hierarchical, and they may have a bishop, and then they may have a, I don't know, a prelate or something, and they got uh, pastors and so on. That's not how the Bible uses that language at all. That, That pastor, elder, bishop, overseer are all synonyms for the same office. And by the time you get to the end of Acts, the elders have emerged as kind of leaders of local congregations uh, in, in plural number. Now, the letters of the New Testament began to be written around the mid-50s A.D. Most scholars think the first letters to be written were um, Galatians and what we call 1 Corinthians, which actually was not Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. It's the, it's the first one that we, that we have. And that's a really important letter on this question about the offices and the roles and who can play them. And at this point, I just want to sort of give you 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28, because Paul there is listing the gifts, and he seems to be listing them in a way that puts first things first and, and seems to be minimizing the gift that's dividing the church, which was tongues. So he puts tongues at the end of the list, and then he gives us at the beginning of the list, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28, God has appointed in the church first, what? Apostles. Second, what? Prophets. Third, what? Teachers. And isn't this pretty much the pattern we see happening as we go through Acts? The apostles there in Acts 1 prophets as early as Acts 2 and throughout the book, and then we come down to teachers and elders. That's about 55 AD. 57 AD, uh, back to the book of Acts. We're now down into Acts chapter 21, verses 8 and 9. Paul's on his way to Jerusalem. He stops in Caesarea, where the text says he entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, one of the deacons chosen back in Acts chapter 6. And then we read this, that Paul stayed with him, and Philip had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So now we're down to the end of the book, and we're seeing an indication of what Peter said and Joel prophesied back in Acts 2, still being practiced in the church. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. We've got an evangelist who's also a deacon, and again, his daughters prophesy. Now, 
I wanted to give us that kind of historical overview of Acts so we could see the development of offices across the history of the church. And again, we began with apostles in Acts 1, added prophets in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. That prophet continues, that, that office continues through the book. Then in Acts 6, we added deacons. And that's the first two years of the church. Elders or pastors come into view around A.D. 40, seven years into the history that's recorded for us in Acts. And by the end of the book, elders are mentioned, as we said, in the same breath as the apostles and are being appointed in every local church. Five years later, 45 A.D., missionaries and teachers are also added to the church. And what we must realize is that the pattern of New Testament leadership in the church isn't settled until late in the book of Acts, after about 15 to 20 years of church growth and church history. And that's also when the apostles begin to write the letters to the churches, explaining to the churches how they should organize themselves for ministry and what the qualifications for ministries uh, would be. So it's about 20 years before that gets settled and codified in the life of the church. Now, I'm stressing this in part because I want to make a, a kind of hermeneutical point, a point about interpreting the scripture. That one rule of interpreting a scripture is you let the scripture interpret the scripture. That's called the analogy of faith. But to do that well, you also have to have in mind another doctrine called progressive revelation. That what God is doing across time and across history is he is progressively revealing more truth. Now, what that means is if you jump back to Acts chapter 1 and say, hey, there were apostles in the new church and there ought to be apostles today without recognizing then 1 Corinthians chapter 12 or 1 Timothy uh, uh, comes much later in the history and as a letter helps us interpret the history you're going to be making some exegetical mistakes. You're going to be playing Bible ping pong and you're going to be thinking, no, I'm quoting the Bible, not realizing you're quoting it out of historical and canonical context. And a lot of that is happening on this issue of roles in the church. Y'all with me? Questions, comments, concerns? Seriously, anybody got any questions? All right. Okay, if you got questions... Ask them. Um, thank you. What's prophesied? I'll answer that in just a moment. All right. Do you got other questions? Come to Thursday night Bible study. We'll keep going on. Second question. Who can serve in which leadership position? So the apostles fade from the scene when the last one dies. That's John in about 95 AD. It's on the Isle of Patmos in prison for the gospel. There are no more apostles in that unique sense. So that office is not on our radar today. At least three offices in the church, prophets, pastor, teachers. Uh, th those things get combined in the list of gifts in Ephesians chapter 4. Pastor, teachers, and deacons. Now the answer as to who can serve in each role differs. Differs. And here's where we want to admit everything that God says and embrace it and understand it in its context. So let's start with prophets. It's debates as to what prophets are, what prophesying is. And some of the definitions will be pretty close to teaching. 
Other definitions will want to make a distinction between uh, prophets and prophecy and teaching and would emphasize prophecy as sort of spirit-produced uh, divine utterance or, or utterance prompted by the spirit, not planned and systematically laid out like a sermon or like teaching. Right? Now you're going to find people, good godly people across the spectrum on that question of prophecy. Now, here's what you're also going to find is that usually the closer people get to defining prophecy as teaching, the more conservative they are uh, in their view of gender roles with regard to prophecy. Right? That, I think, is probably a mistake. So let's, let's trace this. Seems clear from the evidence in both Acts and the letters that both men and women prophesied in the early church. Everybody saw that, right? Everybody saw that. We've already seen, I only heard women. Everybody saw that, right? (laughs) We've seen Agabus in Acts chapter 11 as a male example. And then we saw Philip's four daughters in in Acts 21 as female examples. Everybody said amen. Amen. We could add to that the evidence alluded to women prophesying in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians. If you want to turn there, um, we'll, we'll, we'll be on this first point in 1 Corinthians. Then we'll go to 1 Timothy. So it's about 55 AD when Paul writes this letter from Ephesus. So this is 20 years or so into the church's development. And we are in a section of the letter that begins in chapter 7, verse 1, where Paul now is answering questions and issues that the church in Corinth has written to him about. And in chapter 11, he begins, verse 2 uh, and following, in talking about the created order. And, and that Christ is the head of man, and God is the head of Christ. So that's all part of his framing as he thinks about order. And he comes down to head coverings. Don't ask me about that. But what he says in verse 5 is this. Every wife who prophesies or prays or prophesies. Every wife who prays or prophesies. Paul there now mentions this activity going on in the church by women and does not correct it. He does not address that, at least at this point, in a way to correct it. To say it shouldn't be happening. Now, you can keep your finger there if you like, but turn over into 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul goes on now in this whole section. In 12, he talks about the gifts. In chapter 13, he talks about the importance of love and says the gifts ain't nothing if you don't love each other. And then in chapter 14, he begins to talk about the necessity of order in Christian worship, and he gives very specific instructions as to how the gifts are to be used, right? So now in verse 6 in chapter 14 says, if, if, if some come to you speaking in tongues, he explains that tongues need to be interpreted and, and in that way become prophecy so that the church would be, would be edified. And then we come down to verse 20, And he encourages them not to be infants in their thinking, but to be mature. And again, he comes back to tongues and to prophecy. Verse 26 begins to talk about when you come together for the for the assembly of the church. Here's the problem. Each one has a hymn. Each one has a lesson. Each one has a revelation. Each one has a tongue. Each one has an interpretation. The church is just out of control in terms of the disorderly use of these various gifts. 
Paul says, let all things be done for building up. Give some instructions again for tongues. But then now notice in verse 30. Because the question here is prophecy. Let two or three prophets speak. I just want to point out, if those are sermons, that's three sermons a Sunday. I'll be talking about how long my sermons is. <laughs> we got potluck today. You'll be all right. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. So you've got this prophecy, whether it's divine, spontaneous utterance or something moving closer to teaching. And you've got this weighing, this sifting, this testing to see that whatever is supposed to be prophesied is actually true according to the scripture. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. Right? So they're talking in turn. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. I love that right there. Because sometimes people be like, I got this gift. I just got to talk. It's like, no, no, no. Paul's whole point here, and he says it in verse 40, is God does not do anything disorderly. And how amazing is this, that the Spirit of God himself, God himself, may be burgeoning to speak through people, but, but in that sense, make himself, makes that revelation submissive to the self-control of the prophet. So Paul is about order and self-control here. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Verse 33, and here's where difficulty gets started. Second part of verse 33. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. But it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, what do we do with that? How do we interpret that? I was up to about 2 o'clock in the morning reading all kinds of commentaries. and I looked at, I was, my wife came upstairs. I was sitting there like this. She said, you all right? I said, man, I'm enjoying the sermon. I'm enjoying the sermon. I said, I feel like some things are moving in my own heart, right? But now notice now what Paul is really up to in this section. Keep in mind, it's about order in the service. He's already said, if you prophesy one at a time. He's already distinguished prophecy from gifts or, or teaching, excuse me. So we're not talking about teachers. We'll come to that next. We're talking about prophecy. There are those who interpret these verses to mean that women should keep silent in the church. In the English translation, that seems self-evident. But there are some important questions to be asked here. Because if we mean this, if we interpret this to mean that women should be absolutely silent in the church, we make the scripture to contradict itself. Because that's not what we saw in the book of Acts, even as late as Acts 21, where we have four prophetesses. That's not what Paul says. He didn't come in close to saying that in chapter 11, verse 5, where he says women are praying or prophesying. Now, if this is an absolute gag rule on women ever speaking, that would rule out praying. That would rule out reading the scripture. Might even rule out singing, since in Colossians, Paul says that we are singing to one another and teaching and admonishing one another. Nobody argues that. Because that would be to prove too much. So the question is, what does Paul have in mind in this text? 
And I think in context, what he has in mind was what he was just addressing uh, just a couple of verses earlier on the necessity of one prophet at a time and in those prophecies being sifted. He seems to be addressing, and I'm stressing seem, he seems to be addressing a situation where folks were speaking out of turn and maybe even sifting or weighing prophecies in such a way that it's disruptive. In fact, the word he uses for speak there is a word that connotes chattering. You know that thing you used to do when you were little in church? Preacher preaching, you talking and mumbling and carrying on? Praise God, your grandmama didn't write this book because... Your grandma would have said something like this. If they chattering, pinch them real hard. I got all kind of bruises still. But Paul's instruction here is that things be done decently and in order, and that this weighing, which may have even involved women challenging their husbands in the public service, hence the instruction, ask your husband at home which helps some of you single women with that question you always ask about this text. Well, what am I supposed to do? He actually wasn't addressing you as a woman as such. But I think in context, this particular problem of folks prophesying in a disorderly way, including some women who might have been sifting their husbands in the midst of the service. And so he says, that's shameful. And it would be. Well, why all this stress? I do not understand the New Testament to forbid prophesying. In fact, we're told in 1 Corinthians to earnestly desire prophecy. In Thessalonians, we're told that we're not to despise prophecy. I do not understand the New Testament to be uh, arguing that that gift is over. And I do not understand the New Testament to be restricting prophecy to men alone. I think it's a category confusion. So let's come to the second office that's still in play. And that's the office of pastor-teacher pastor teacher again seven years later so Paul writes first Corinthians in 55 AD seven years later he writes the letter that we have that we call first Timothy that's almost 30 years of church history and development from the time Jesus ascends in Acts 1 to the time that he writes this letter to Timothy who's now pastoring in Ephesus so turn with me to first Timothy chapter 3 Paul gives us the purpose for this letter in verse 15 He's written to Timothy so that Timothy may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So the whole letter is, is about, you know, precisely what we're talking about. The order and the behavior and the worship of the church, the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, when it comes to teaching and pastoring, the Bible gives us a different set of instructions than it gave us for prophesying. Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2, look there with me, verses 11 to 14, let a woman learn in silence with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, that deserves a sermon or two of its own, but let me try to give us three quick things to note. First, verse 11 is countercultural for Paul's day. And it's still countercultural for many places where girls and women are not allowed an education. 
Here we have again the sort of egalitarian nature of the Christian church. The positive force of that sentence in verse 11 is let, positively, a woman learn. Let her be a disciple. That would not have been the case in rabbinical Judaism in in Paul's day. It won't be the case with imams in Islam. Uh, That won't be the case with conservative radical Hinduism. The Bible here is breaking the cultural mode of suppressing women and holding back their discipleship. Let a woman learn. But Paul is still concerned about order in all submissiveness. Now, he reaches for that, not by saying, okay, in my day or among my boys, this is how we do it. He gives the theological justification all the way back from Genesis, from the creation order itself. Notice what he says. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. So we're talking about the teaching and the pastoral office here. I'm not talking about prophesying. Teaching and pastorate. Now notice that he roots this again in the creation order. Verse 13. Paul writes there, excuse me, uh, for Adam was made first, then Eve. He doesn't say Adam was stronger. He doesn't say Adam was wiser. He didn't say Adam was a better preacher or teacher. The best Bible teacher in my household is my wife. It really is. He says Adam was created first. And so what I think he has in mind is something like the the sort of rule of primogeniture in the Old Testament, the rule of the firstborn, where the sort of rights and authority accrue to the firstborn. Adam here is firstborn, and Adam is head then, the federal head of all mankind. And in that capacity, he is meant to lead and shepherd and protect. That's what Paul is after there. He's not diminishing women. He's not saying women don't have teaching gifts. He's not saying women aren't capable. He's saying, however, there is an order in the household of God that is meant for the flourishing and the blessing of God's people. He goes on to say there that Adam wasn't deceived, but Eve was deceived. And that's Eve's confession in Genesis 3.16. She says, the serpent deceived me. He's not saying women are more gullible. He's stating a historical fact and Eve's own testimony. And the consequence of that sin, Genesis tells us really clearly, is that a woman shall desire her husband and the husband shall rule over her. Now, I think there, the Bible is talking about the ways in which the relationship between male and female is poisoned by sin. So that the rule is harsh and sinful. That there is a grabbing after leadership that's sinful. What the gospel is doing is restoring that pattern both in the church and in the home, not in a sinful way, but so that you get Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And you get Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands in everything as the church submits to the Lord. That that is meant for our flourishing and the beautification of the church and the beautification of the home. When Christ has redeemed our hearts and our minds to live as he intends us to. And so this office of pastor and the activity of teaching is restricted, listen now, to a limited number of spiritually qualified men. It's not even all men rule the church. 
Those who have the qualifications we see in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And this restriction, I think, addresses the problems created at the fall. It restores the original creation order, number one. It addresses the disorder caused by sin at the fall, number two. And number three, it addresses even the problem of male apathy and abdication, which has been there since Adam. The text says, stand up, man, and lead the way God has called you to. That's the office of pastor and teacher. Restricted to qualified men. Meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3. Now, finally, the office of deacon and deaconess. 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 13 gives us spiritual qualifications for the office of deacon, like the qualifications for pastors and elders. The list focuses on character rather than gifting. I'll allow you to read it and reflect on it uh, at your leisure. Now, notice the repetition of the word likewise in verse 8 um, and in verse 11. That word likewise indicates that Paul is thinking in a kind of serial list. He began with the first office of um, overseer, chapter 3, verse 1, gives the spiritual qualifications down to verse 7. And he says, likewise, deacons. So that's number two in the list. Then number three in the list, he says, likewise, their wives. Now, the, word, the translation in most English versions, their wives, is, I think, a bit more interpretation than translation. The word there is likewise, the women. The women. These could be wives to the deacons, but if this is a, a spiritual qualification for a deacon's wife, it's kind of odd that he didn't give a similar list of qualifications for a pastor's wife. So I think what Paul is doing here is articulating three office, offices or office holders, if you will. The elders in verse 1, the male deacons in verse 8, and you can see there the ways in which those qualifications are framed as if it's a man. Uh, and then you can see in verse 11, likewise their wives. Here I think he's talking about deaconesses. And I would give you further evidence of that. I would, I would refer to Phoebe in Romans 16, 1 and 2, described as a deacon. Uh, so I think here are the qualifications for deaconesses. So in short, women and men may both serve as deacons in a local church. Amen. That ministry of caring for the practical needs of the church is meant to be distributed among, uh, among the body in that way. So as I practice here at Anacostia River Church, because of this understanding of the Bible, that we have uh, both men and women serving as deacons and praise God for them. We don't have any prophets that I know of. Y'all stand up and start prophesying. You better come correct. <laughs> but if we did, it seems most consistent with the Bible that that gift of prophecy would be given to men and women, as we have seen in, in the Bible. But the gift of pastor-teacher, the call of pastor-teacher, restricted to men. Any questions?
Great question. So the question is, if pastor teacher is restricted to men, what about Bible studies, small group settings? Are there other places where women can teach? I think Paul's concern here about teaching primarily is that women teach to other women. That's the clearest thing uh, in, the, in the scriptures. Um, and so I think most churches uh, would have basically that kind of practice in order to keep clear the distinction around the teaching office uh, and the pastoral office of the church. Now, let me hasten to say you'll find godly men and godly churches who hold this basic view of the role of, of, of office of pastor who will put the line in different places in terms of how they apply this um, beyond the pulpit and beyond the, the sort of main teaching of the church. So you may find godly pastors who think uh, a woman leading a small group setting since it's not the gathering of the church and she's not exercising the office of pastor, that that may be okay. In, in our context, we have what we call block groups. These are evangelistic groups. Um, I'm, I'm quite happy for a woman to lead a block group to share the gospel, right? There's nothing in the Bible that restricts a woman from sharing the gospel. Uh, and so if some guys show up for that, we're probably going to send some other guys so she ain't in our house by herself with a bunch of guys. But if she opens the word and, and shares the gospel and tells people about Jesus, that's something all of us are called to do in the Great Commission. Right. So sometimes this question of roles begins to intersect with this issue of the Great Commission, which falls on all Christians. I think we need some carefulness there that we don't extend the teaching about the home and the pulpit, the home and the office of pastor beyond what's written in the Bible. That was a great question, Brother Howard. All right. LaRonda. Great question. So earlier in Acts, uh, it talks about elders and it talks about teachers, but it wasn't linked together. She's pointing out that I've been talking about them as linked together. When does that happen? Uh, and so on. Uh, I talk about them as linked together because that's how Paul lists them in the list of gifts in Ephesians. So in Ephesians chapter 4, around verse 11 or so, um, Paul says there we've got apostles and he says pastor teachers. Right. So by the time Ephesians is written, which is later in the history of the church compared to Acts, um, they are they are talking about that office joined together in that way. And in First Timothy chapter two, where he says, I, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority. Uh, I think he's ruling out both activities in the gathered church. So so the kind of juridical authority to lead the church is being restricted there. And the sort of teaching authority that goes with that office is being restricted there. Did I, did I get all of it? You, you look, okay. You have to be a little louder for me. What's the role of deacon? Great question. The role of deacon is to care for the physical needs of the church, like the needs of the widows and acts. Uh, here, our deacons will have particular areas of ministry that they care for uh, because we're, again, focusing them uh, in that way. So what you'll find in a lot of churches that have only deacons and no elders is you'll probably find some of the deacons kind of function like elders, right? Uh, if I were in a church situation like that, I, I wouldn't have women deacons until I clarified those roles, right, and separated them. So it's sort of a healthier biblical approach there. Let me give us our last question and point, and then we can talk over potluck, okay? Third question. Dave? Dave? 
What's the way to allow women or encourage women to prophesy in a, in a gathering like this? Uh, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. <laughs> Trying to get me in trouble. You're taking me further than I want to go right now. Come to Bible study. We'll talk about it more. I have some more answers. All right, let me give you my last question uh, for the sermon, then we'll be done. How should we then respond um, to pastors and deacons? How should we support people in this office? I think there are two things to give it to you real briefly. Number one, we should help them. We should help them. As Paul's instruction to the church in Rome, when Phoebe gets there, uh, help her in her ministry. Um, Deacons and pastors work for the welfare of the church. Uh, Again, deacons uh, lead by serving. Pastors serve by leading. But they cannot, we cannot do the work of ministry alone. We're intended to do that. It takes the entire body of Christ, each joint, each ligament, supplying to the body to make the body grow. So first thing we do is we help them in their service. So uh, especially with the deacons, when they put out calls and the deaconesses put out calls for volunteers, help them, respond, commit yourself. When they need resources, provide resources to carry out their work, which helps us all as a body. And please let us be a church, and I think we are, and let's do it more and more. Let's be a church that encourages our leaders, our deacons and deaconesses. Specific um, comments, notes, um, observations of things they do well, sharing with them the ways in which their ministry blesses you. Let us be committed to a ministry of encouragement because that will help those who serve us. There should not be any unnoticed, underappreciated parts of the body in Christ. So first, help them. Secondly, honor them. Honor them. 1 Timothy 3.13 says of deacons, those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. First Timothy 5, 17, speaking now of elders, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. What does this honor look like? Well, according to verse 18, 1 Timothy 5, verse 18, showing honor looks like paying uh, staff pastors for their labors, which you do very well. Praise the Lord. Verse 19, showing honor means protecting the reputations of your leaders and not accepting any gossip or slander against them without multiple accusers. Amen. So church communities ought to be places that honor their leaders in such a way that you can't come in there and talk bad about leaders. But we honor and build up and protect. Then in verse 20, you honor the office and the person by correcting them publicly if they do continue to sin. Right? So I understand, and I want you to do, that if I am caught in unrepentant sin of any sort, and there are two or three witnesses, co-accusers to that sin, that you will notify the elders, and the elders will take appropriate action, and I'll be standing up here on one Sunday morning before you all being rebuked publicly for my sin. That will be for the good of my soul. And it will be for the good of the church. And I will not understand you to love me if you don't do that. And I want you to know this while I'm in my right mind, because if I'm in sin, I'm, I'm going to be deceived by my sin. I mean, it's real talk, right? Amen. That's right, Doc. Real talk. Sin, sinners don't want correction. That's good. 
So if I come off the rails, you need to be able to say, brother, you said you was in your right mind when, when you asked us to rebuke you publicly for your sin. And when we come to congregationalism, I want you to understand that's a congregational responsibility. You understand? Right? We got way too many churches where leaders are unaccountable. That's just the bottom line. And it's wrecking the reputation of Christ in those churches. All right? So you honor by supporting, protecting the reputation, um, giving financially. You honor by correcting in sin, and, and we help. That's the response to the gift of leadership that God gives this church. So let me, let me stop here. We've got a gospel community birthed by the good news of Jesus Christ, that he died for our sins and was raised from the grave, and he sent us his spirit. And that community, in terms of its relational ethos, is egalitarian. We are all equal in Christ. This is why you get texts like Galatians 3.28, in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, so on and so forth. It's an egalitarian relational community, and an egalitarian community where everyone has gifts as the Spirit sovereignly gives it. But it's also a community of order, right? It's a community where God wishes to be understood. And, and in the imposition of God's order, he has restricted some offices and he has permitted others. And all of that is good. God does all things well. And it's living in that order that we flourish as we honor and as we help our leaders and as we honor and help each other as the body of Christ. I think what this means is if you're hearing you're not a Christian, there is a way to be renewed and a way for your life to be reordered. Your heart and your mind can be made new. If, if you're here and you're, and you're aware of your life in any way, beloved, you know you're a sinner. You know that even your reaction to my calling you a sinner is sinful. But it's true. The question is, do you want a new heart? Do you want a new mind? Do you want to be a new creation? And you know that your sin has disordered your life. You love things you should not love. You do things you should not do. You go places you should not go. Things are twisted. And there's a way to have it straightened. To have your life ordered. To be brought under God's gracious but clear rule. And that's for you to confess that you're a sinner. To repent of sin, to turn away from it. And to put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. As your, as your God and the one who rescues you from sin and makes you new. And accomplishes that rescue when he was crucified for your sins and raised from the grave three days later for your justification. God begins a renewing work in everyone who puts their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that that old life of dead works and dead conscience and twisted thinking and twisted feelings begins ever so gradually and sometimes radically to be straightened and renewed. To you think differently and live differently and feel differently. And so even when you feel the old thing again, there's something in you saying, that's not us anymore. Come on, let's keep going this way. God will do that work in you until until he completes it on the day of Jesus Christ. As a way to be new again, beloved. 
Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Come join his family, the church. And let's walk together until the day the work is done. And we are freed forever from sin and guilt and freed forever to only enjoy Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time we've had together and the time we will have as we fellowship over a meal, as we press into each other heart to heart, as we continue to think through what your word teaches us about your church. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us to hold fast to what is good and to toss aside what is evil, and that we would grow in the likeness of Christ. Lord, help us to be ordered by your word, to do all things according to your word, to enjoy the liberty of your spirit, but also, Lord, to do that beneath your rule. We are not rebels. We are your saints. Help us to reflect it more and more, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.